It's a pleasure for me to be here with you on this beautiful Saturday afternoon for this conference on virtue and moral character according to St. Thomas Aquinas. I want to tell you that I was initially scheduled to give this lecture last February, last year, and then there was a blizzard. And so it was postponed to this year. So I already had most of my notes ready of what I would say today. But then we went through 2016. <laughs> and so after, uh, that's why in my outline, the very first bullet point is pessimism. <laughs> so after a rather a divisive year, and I would say a very divisive election, I think that there is a lot of uh, pessimism in the air. We certainly experienced that through 2016. I know I certainly, certainly did. Um, and there's a lot of pessimism in the culture, in our country, and there has been for a long while on a whole host of issues. I mean, there are all sorts of divisions and disputes that divide friends and families. My conference today obviously isn't going to change that. <laughs> um, I have no illusions of that. But I hope that our time together this afternoon might point to the locus of the disputes, uh, or what, what I think grounds them, and, that, and somehow to offer you a classical Thomistic understanding of how to move beyond them in good character. Okay. Specifically, this afternoon, I'd like to spend some time discussing uh, the nature of morality and, and, and the moral standpoint or the nature of moral character from the moral standpoint of St. Thomas Aquinas, which it will be obvious is not the view that most people operate with today. Let's face it, the moment you begin to speak about morality at dinner or over cocktails um, or with friends, the moment you begin to even talk about morality, pretty much anybody and everybody presumes that you're really interested in telling them what they should be doing and how they should live, right? So the notion uh, of morality today bears within itself an overriding notion of obligation and duty. <coughs> Being moral is fulfilling my duties and fulfill, fulfilling my obligation. And if we're honest, um, often those duties and obligations are also viewed as somehow impinging on our freedom, what we would like to do. I'd like to be doing this, but you know, I'm really obligated to be here with you. Okay. Even how we learn about law and freedom in school as school children, uh, this certainly reflects my experience, suggests morality is first and foremost about restriction. When I was a child, I always remember teachers teaching us morality and constitutional, you know, like the Ten, uh, the, the, the Bill of Rights. I was going to really say the Ten Commandments, but the Bill of Rights. And what was the phrase they always use? Your rights end where mine begin. Right? So you can't do what you want to do if it affects me. So it's always about restriction. I'm restricting your freedom. Now, for a number of reasons, which I don't have the time to go into here today, um, I would say that in the United States and probably in the Western world, we tend to view freedom as simply the actualization of our desires. Freedom is the freedom to live out what I desire. And that freedom is only hindered by law, whether it's secular law, whether it's God's law, whether it's my parents' rules, whatever it is, right? Um, I, I can't live out my desires because I'm impinged by the laws of the of this community in which I live. So it's my desires are hindered by law, by duties, by obligation, and uh, dare we say even responsibility. We all accept responsibility, more or less, because we tend to see responsibility in the long run as a good thing because of its, um, the way it might benefit us later as well. I mean, that's a very pessimistic view, but this is the pessimism point of the talk. So it's up to us to discern those laws, duties, obligations, and responsibilities, and then to weigh them with what we desire to actually do. It's up to us to adjudicate uh, the limits of our freedom in the face of those duties. And if we discern poorly, if we, if we don't keep that in balance, we can expect to be held accountable for it. Uh, by friends, by family, by the state, 
and by the belie- and for the believer by God, right? by God Himself, whose law imposes the ultimate duties and obligations. In his great encyclical, Veritatis Splendor, Pope Saint John Paul II heavily criticized this view of freedom. Heavily criticized it. The entire first third of uh, Veritatis Splendor is basically a criticism of this view of freedom. Which, and I should say this at the beginning of my talk, my reflections today are, are inspired, and the very um, title of the talk, Freedom for Excellence, are inspired by the late great Dominican moral theologian, Father Servius Pinkers, who by all accounts was also influential during the papacy of St. John Paul II, right? and by many accounts was consulted in the drafting of Veritatis Splendor, the Splendor of Truth. We're going to talk a little bit about freedom of excellence in a minute. But St. John Paul II, and we could say Father Servius Pinkers, criticized the view that freedom is essentially indifferent. And that's how we would describe this view of freedom which is to say that freedom is simply the raw power to choose this or to choose that, that it's indifferent to values except those that transgress boundaries. Right? So freedom is this view that freedom is simply a power to choose. This is the view of freedom that we live with in the Western world. Just do it unless it violates my health or me or my rights. So discussions about morality are often very difficult to have, especially when you start debating even legality, what is legal, what is not legal, why is something legal, why is a policy promoted, why is it not, um, what does it mean uh, to be ethical uh, beyond what industry standards and whatever industry I might be working in says is ethical. So having those larger discussions often prove very frustrating and very difficult. And in the end, um, when you start getting into like what does it mean to be good, what should be legal or what should be illegal, because there's not a lot of common agreement on even how to begin having those discussions, what you end up finding, what you end up finding is that the conversation is inevitably reduced to argument, not scholarly argument, I mean like emotional arguments, right? Um, well, I feel this way, or, you know, that's just silly. You know, it, it, you just keep going back and forth until that's what you're left with. Right? Alistair McIntyre talked a little bit about this in his book, After Virtue. So some of you may recognize this. Where he, he, he argues that Western morality is still using the very words that morality ought to use, but has forgotten what many of the words actually mean, slowly. Okay? So even though we use words like moral or good, we don't really know what it means beyond, um, in some cases, even just a legal positivism. It's good because it's legal. It's bad because it's illegal. This often breaks down. We see this breakdown in all sorts of policy and legal disputes going on in the country, like, um, for example, medical marijuana, whether marijuana is, should be a legal drug or not a legal drug. When you talk about, um, I'll tell you where maybe some in the room would really identify with is the legal drinking age. Seems awfully random at 21, right? So why, why is that? See, you can't even have these discussions. Right? Now, the drinking age, you might have more of a, more of a chance of common agreement you know, than other serious moral issues. And so it often devolves into an emotional argument. McIntyre calls that emotivism. It turns into an emotivist argument. Now, for St. Thomas Aquinas, the question of what it means to be moral is, in fact, a central question, the central question. The central portion of his great work, the Summa Theologica, the second part, which, as you know, is divided into two parts, the first part of the second part and the second part of the second part, uh, creatively named. So you know that the central part of that is all about morality. So it's sort of bookended with the first part about God, revelation, God, creation, man, angels, the fall. And then the third part is about... um, uh, sacraments, Christ, getting back to God. Right? But the central part 
is about morality. And he did that because in his day, as he was teaching young student brothers, young seminarians for the order, he recognized that what had happened in the church was that priests were learning morality in a sort of abstract case-by-case way, we call it casuistry, without sort of connecting what does it mean to be moral with larger truths about what it means to be human and what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Right? So first you're going to learn about God, then you're going to learn about creation, then you're going to learn about man and love and all these. Then we're going to teach you about what it means to be moral, and then we're going to tell you how you're going to be moral through Jesus Christ. That was basically his system. For St. Thomas Aquinas... Morality, and people often um, balk at this point, but it's true. Morality for St. Thomas does not involve primarily duty or obligation or obedience to the law. In fact, it was only after, say, beginning in the 15th century, 16th century, where even Catholic moralists started focusing on law excessively and using Aquinas to excuse themselves, mostly the Jesuits, right? So, for St. Thomas, that whole central section on morality, only a small part is actually about the law. Only a small part. I always tell my students that for St. Thomas, morality is basically about two questions. First, what is happiness? And secondly, how do I get it? That's basically, in a nutshell, what morality is about for St. Thomas. What is happiness, and how do I get it? So for St. Thomas, the first question of morality is happiness, something he asserts that everybody seeks, even if, he readily admits, we all have different ideas on what it means to be happy. That's why we all live very different lives. We're all operating deep down, um, and that's the best way to think about it, deep down, We're operating with some conception of what we think the good life is, of what we think the happy life is. And everything we do in life is, in fact, directed to that goal. So Tony Soprano has a view of what it means to be a happy man. I mean, I think that's what the series was about. I'm probably aging myself. You know, he's, he's a mobster who's increasingly realizing he's actually unhappy being a crime boss. So that's why he's going to counseling. Right? He, from a certain sense, for St. Thomas, even though we can objectively say he lives an immoral life, is in fact doing what St. Thomas says we do. He's identified a goal of life, a way of life, and he's taking the steps to live that life to what he believes is going to lead him to happiness. Even though objectively, Aquinas would argue, and I think I would agree, I hope he would too, he's radically mistaken about what the good life is. So for St. Thomas, he says that happiness is the good, and I'll talk a little bit more about goodness, but which is all-embracing and unsurpassable. It's the goal for which we do everything else that we do. Now, it's possible, obviously, to have immediate goals and immediate goods that we're seeking, uh, but there's some complete good that we're seeking. And there can be, this is all really common sense, right? I mean, um, there could be, increasingly larger goals you seek in life, you know, getting a, getting a college degree, getting a career, having, getting a family, having children. Those are larger, larger, and larger goals. But St. Thomas says that none of those is complete happiness because once you get them, it's not like you're done, right? There's more happiness for St. Thomas. Perfect happiness is once I have it, there's nothing else to do. It's completely filling and absolutely all-embracing. So you can already see where this is going. You're not going to get there in this life, right? You got that? So, okay, good. Um, just to telegraph that. The final, and so if we can use this word, the final and ultimate good, the perfect happiness is that which ultimately fulfills, fulfills our nature. Now, in the end, obviously, he's going to say that this good is God himself. He's the answer to everyone's longing, even if they don't realize it. You know, the New Testament is clear in all sorts of ways, right, that um, God created man, God created us to seek him and to find him. In fact, St. Thomas says that God is the answer not only to our lives, but he's the answer and fulfillment of every creature's purpose, 
every creature, whether it's birds or rocks or dogs or electrons, everything that exists finds its perfection in goodness. And goodness is simply doing what your nature directs you to do. So a rock, it's good for a rock to be on the ground. Right? It's not good for a rock to, if I throw a rock up in the air now, gravity, obviously, but if I throw a rock up in the air, the rock doesn't want to be in the air. It wants to be on the ground. That's why it goes back to the ground. Right? You see, it's electrons, it's good that electrons are, are uh, ro- rotating or revolving around you know, the protons and the neutrons. This is their good. It's good that geese fly south. It's good that, that, that trees grow towards the sun. This is their good. That's what their nature is. So he's going to take that and take it to the next level and that say for men and women, for the human person, the good is a pursuit that is radically different than the pursuit of electrons, birds, dogs, trees, rocks, everything else. And here he cites at the very beginning of that central section, the second part of the Summa, he cites St. John Damascene on Genesis to support his own sort of view on this. St. John Damascene states, he says, man is said to be made in God's image insofar as the image implies an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement. St. Thomas goes on, now that we have treated God in that first part and of those things which come forth from God, creation, etc., It remains for us to treat his image, the human person, inasmuch as the human person, too, is the principle, having free will, and here's the the key, control of his actions. The rock cannot help but to fall to the ground. The, The geese cannot help but fly south. The trees cannot help but to grow towards the sun. The human person, made in the image of God, is master of his actions, has control of his actions. When you don't have control, which sometimes happens, then you're not acting humanly. You're acting more like an animal. The classical theological tradition and the Christian theological tradition in which Aquinas is working identifies the uniqueness of the human person in the ability of free will. The pursuit of the good in knowledge of the good, the true good. So pursuit and knowledge together. So as to say, as I said, we are masters of our actions and our choices. So human morality for St. Thomas is about those choices that we can control. And I don't mean um, by control, I have to do my homework because I don't have any control over this. St. Thomas means every choice we make from choosing uh, sparkling water to Mountain Dew, from choosing steak to chicken for dinner, every choice in which you have some active part in, in, even if it's a very quick decision, that's a moral choice. The only things you do that are not moral for St. Thomas are things you absolutely are doing without, pay, without paying attention or which you do absolutely have no control over, say, because you're unconscious or you've lost your reason, right? You've gone mad. Every choice is a moral choice. Think about that the next time you choose Mountain Dew over iced tea. It's a moral choice, but you're doing it for a reason, to get the caffeine so that you can study. See, so it's all a moral choice. So properly human actions, excuse me, are those that are directed by the person for a known purpose. Human actions are directed by us for a purpose that we know and that we have deigned, if you will, even if we're wrong at times. Sometimes you pursue things and you choose things and it doesn't yield the results you wanted. You made a mistake there. (coughs) Free will, for St. Thomas, is not simply a power to choose, 
Rather, it's the interaction between that yearning for goodness, and by goodness he means here simply perfection. Right? That there, when I'm pursuing something, it's because um, there's something about it that I can, I can understand, I know, will fill up something that's deficient or lacking in me. Right? And that goes from very basic things like uh, I'm hungry, and so I'm going to pursue food right now, to um, the highest good in this world, which is marriage. Uh, this person in some ways fulfills me and fills up some deficiency in me. Right? So f- everything from food all the way to the highest good of marriage are all about the interaction of pursuing some good that we see as perfecting of us. And then, of course, with human love, um, and we're not going to get into this too much today, but with human love, obviously then there's some ways in which I am perfected by helping the other become perfected. So it's not simply self-centered. I find that out as I come to love a person, that their good becomes my good. Their perfection becomes my perfection. Right? So whatever we do, even the smallest things we do, uh, we have a purpose in mind. And this is what he believes, St. Thomas, separates us from all animals and other creatures. It's not only that we are pursuing a good, or that we have an idea of what we need to do, both in the long term and right now, it's that we can choose actions that we can sort of see the connection. If I do this, I'm going to get to this good. I can make the connection. Right? So, this is what we, he means when we talk about the fact that human morality is about acting with purpose because we are masters of our actions and because the good is attractive. Now, immediately, I realize... Um, that there is, this raises an important question, which is, as I alluded to earlier, that we can have differing opinions on what goodness is, and what happiness is, and what perfection is. St. Thomas presumes that there is, in fact, such a thing as true happiness and true good apart from the fact of whether I believe it or not. So there might be a subjective element of what I think I will find my happiness is, and he admits there's all sorts of things in this world, wealth, fame, honor, which are not sinful and may bring happiness, but an imperfect happiness. Okay, so it's not sinful to have wealth, fame, even power. But even properly used, they don't bring perfect happiness. For St. Thomas, um, and really for the Catholic tradition on this question, happiness is the fulfillment of the nature, of human nature. And human nature is understood to be its highest activity. What radically separates us from other creatures? And that, once again, is... Thought, pursuing knowledge and truth, and will, pursuing goodness. So for St. Thomas in this life, and here he's building off of Aristotle, in this life, the activity of the mind and pursuing truth is the best and highest activity. For everyone, whether believer or not, he believes that. Sure. If I can say it exactly the same way. For St. Thomas, in this life, the best and highest activity is the pursuit of truth and knowledge. Because that's what makes us human. That's what separates us from all else. As a man of faith, going back to St. John Damascene, right? That's what he thinks, and that's really what the entire Catholic tradition thinks. It means to be made in the image of God. To know truth and to pursue goodness and perfection, and to know that pursuit, not simply to be going through the motions. So St. Thomas would, um, 
reject with prejudice, extreme prejudice, any thought that any type of learning is merely practical right? and is not useful for bringing happiness. He would reject with prejudice any idea that, so for example, going to school is simply to get a diploma. Because for St. Thomas, what we come to invest ourselves in, both in truth and what we are pursuing as our good, and this is where we're going to get into this moral character business, um, defines us. It makes us who we are. So that the person who's even studying microbiology, that microbiology, if it's something that pleases her and gives her delight, it works herself it works itself into her, and she becomes a microbiologist, not only in name, but also in character. It becomes who she is. Right? And that becomes a mode of happiness. Although, because it's not God, still an imperfect happiness. So St. Thomas's presumption is that the highest activity uh, for us is thinking and pursuing truth wherever it's found, however it's found, and our highest sort of appetite and desire is goodness, perfect goodness, which is perfect happiness, perfect perfection in such. Now for St. Thomas, this is not an abstract theory, even though I might be speaking of it abstractly. We don't sit in our armchairs by a fire and ponder what we think goodness and truth is. He's, not, he's also not in favor of sort of armchair, you know, ruminations. This is very much a lived uh, ethic. It's a lived morality. We are not simply rational beings um, who concede that at times we may have emotions or passions. So St. Thomas is not a Stoic. He's, in fact, very dismissive of, of any sort of Stoic mentality that you should not feel. You should simply be logical and intellectual. The great Thomas scholar, Father Seveus Pinkers, put it succinctly when he says, um, it is at the level of emotion and passions that love raises the moral question that really determines the quality of our, our actions, our choices. What, what, in fact, attracts us in life? Who attracts us in life? Um, determines, in some ways, who we are. He, he asks, what deserves to be loved in a personal way, to become the goal of our actions and the culmination of our lives? This question presupposes, Pinker says, a rising up from the depths of the human heart of a love superior to that of feelings, because it engages the person's entire free will, because I'm choosing now what to love and what to pursue. It's in the name of what one loves that, that the will sort of pursues and attracts and does everything else that it does. And so in other words, you tell me who or what you love and I will tell you who you are. Okay. Love, as we are all very well aware, is a very uh, tricky thing. It's a complicated thing. We know that when we love somebody, we know that it makes demands of us. So our emotional life, because we are emotional, this is where what we share with animals, can often lead us to extremes. And for, even for those who are disciplined, it can be tempting to want to suppress the emotional life. That would be a vice for St. Thomas. To not have any feeling and to try not to have feeling would be just as vicious as to be overly passionate and to be, let your passions run away with you. Oh, it would be just as vicious for St. Thomas and not at all virtuous. The thesis of St. Thomas is that freedom is fundamentally intended to be a freedom to uh, love rightly. And that's what we mean by freedom for excellence. That freedom is fundamentally a freedom to grow more free to love more excellency, excellently and to love things in a proper order and in a proper way. So that, I, so that I love my parents more than I love my dog, right? 
is an obvious example, but that one loves one's wife and family more than one's work. Right? So that there's a hierarchy of loves and that God is loved above all, of course. The difficulty is that our freedom can be corrupted when what we love and what we're pursuing becomes disintegrated, corrupt, and in fact deficient. And so the moral life, I want to suggest to you, the life of developing moral, moral character, uh, what we should call a life of growing in virtue, is the life of becoming an integrated person, a whole person who can love rightly and who can love well. And ultimately, we need to say that a person who loves life to the full and loves it well and loves well is able to love others and is ultimately, and we'll get to this in the second part of today's time together, our second conference, is ultimately ready to be made capable of loving God eternally. When I love well, I'm in fact growing more capable of loving God. It's because the human person is so malleable that the question of character is so important for St. Thomas. We're malleable, all of us. Um, goodness and truth is not simply one thing. There's multiplicity of goodness in the world and in your lives. There's a multiplicity of true things in the world and in your lives. There's not just one good thing, not one true thing. And so even though you're you're sort of geared, St. Thomas says, you're hardwired to pursue goodness and truth. You're, you're malleable because what you, the goods that you pursue or the truths that you pursue are going to be different than the truths and goods that I pursue. Right? And that's, what, that's why character is so important for him. Because what I'm pursuing actually molds me. It molds our character. For St. Thomas, um, this is why uh, sin is for him, um, just simply this on the outline, I'm just going to say this very briefly because I want to move on to that character business. <clears throat> for St. Thomas, sin is uh, basically when human choices go bad. Um, it's not fundamentally um, because you violated one of the commandments precepts of the church because you didn't go to Sunday Mass or something. I mean, for St. Thomas, it's directly the reverse. Those things exist because um, there's a deeper reason in our nature and our relationship with God that calls forth them, those things as attractive, right? So adultery is not wrong because it's a commandment. It's a commandment because it's wrong, all right? Does that make sense? So there's a deeper reason. I think, you know, now I'm a celibate priest. So I don't have children. Uh, one of the, one of the um, I would say, pitfalls that I notice in a lot of my friends who have families who are really trying to instill character in their children, where it can be tempting to go wrong on this, is not helping their children to understand. I mean, when you're a child, St. Paul talks about this, right? When I'm a child, you, need, you, need, you do need rules and regulations, and your parents have to be very strong on that, right? But if there's never a moment where the child, you know, growing into the age of reason and then into teenage years um, starts to understand why the rules exist, or if the parent is not able to articulate the rationale or the, the love behind the rules, there could be real problems, right? I think we can all recognize that, you see. So because it, then it becomes simply a ruled-centered morality. I would say most Catholics in the United States lived by that sort of mentality at least until the 1960s, right? The, the Sunday duty, the confession obligation. Um, I will say this because she will not hear this recording. Uh, my mother's gone to God, but my, my mother's siblings, my aunts and uncles, who are very good Catholics, I would say by any definition of the word, still live this way, you know? Um, none of their children go to Mass. None of their children are practicing, right? So none of my cousins. But, you know, they can't figure this out because, you know, because, but their only response is always, you're Catholic, this is what you're supposed to do. This is not the most effective means of evangelization, right? 
So for St. Thomas, that's when he talks about sin, he says sin usually comes from um, either exchanging a non-good, something that really isn't good objectively, a disordered good right, um, for the higher good. So if I love, this is, I mean, sexual sins are the easiest ones to talk about on that front, right? Sexuality is an inherent good, but it must be properly ordered to higher goods, such as the expression of love of spouse, right? The, the goodness of procreation of children. But if I choose sexual activity or a sexual relationship that is not ordered to that, that's why it's a sin, because I'm loving something lower instead of higher. Does that make sense? So if I go lower rather than higher, because my mind is supposed to be going higher always. And so when I choose to go lower, I'm debasing myself and becoming more like an animal. And that's true whether we're talking about sexual sins or even other sins. It's always a disordered love of some, in some way. And it often happens because the will and the intellect, their little, their little interrelationship, you know, the will's kind of pursuing goodness, goodness. The intellect's like pursuing truth, truth. Okay, this is good. The intellect's this is good. It's like a two-piston engine. Here's good. Okay, I'm going to go after that. Then this, you know, what can happen is that little, that nice little system that's working in you can get, um, let's just say a wrench can get thrown into that engine by um, emo an emotional life that is disordered. Fear, lust, um, excessive desire, despair, audacity, all of these things. For St. Thomas, following, once again, Aristotle, there are essentially two categories of emotions in us, passions in us, the concupiscible, which are those passions that really get worked up when we're attracted to something, whether it's a good slice of pizza or whether it's another person, right? And different levels, of course, right? <laughs> and the irascible is, uh, are those emo emotions that... Um, get flared up in the face of some difficulty. So when you know you've got to go have a tough conversation and what, what happens? Well, you're scared, you get fearful, and then before you know it, you get... But you might be a person who fear is not a huge problem, but, you just, you, but you have, you're more audacious, so audacity. And I'm going to go in, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind right now. <laughs> That's the irascible, right? Father Sebastian will tell you I have a little bit of that. So, uh, you know... <laughs> So some of us are more. And for St. Thomas, um, given our body, soul, complexity, and the, our chemistries, he doesn't use the word chemistry, obviously, that's mine, we're all sort of um, bent to one or other of those. So you might be a person who struggles more with harassability than the concupiscible. You might be a person who's much, just much more sensuous than you are harassable. Or you might be a person who's much more harassable than you are sensuous. Does that make sense? He's got, he's got a lot of this figured out, right? I mean, it's 800 years ago, so uh, he's got a lot of this figured out. So it's because of that 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 wonderful system doesn't work. But at the same time, St. Thomas says, um, the emotions are not the problem. The passions are not the problem. Um, we're going to get to that in a minute, but let me speak a little bit then about character. The word we're going to use for character is the word St. Thomas uses. It's habitus, which I know on your handout looks like the word habit, uh, but Thomas generally don't like to use the English word habit because that word in English has so much baggage attached to it. All right, so we're not going to use that word. We're going to use the word habitus, which, by the way, is spelled the same whether you're talking about one or 20 of them. Okay, so habitus. Um, a habitus for St. Thomas is more than a disposition. This is important for you to understand when we get to this a little bit in the second talk today. Um, a habitus is an is a abiding quality in the person. It's a very general definition. I'm going to make some distinctions. Um, I'll give you what he exactly says. He says a habitus is a quality of something in relation to itself or in relation to something else and whether the quality is suitable or unsuitable. All right, so I'm going to peel that away for you in a minute. But 
So habitus is, first of all, a relationship, a relationship to oneself or something else. For St. Thomas, there are two types of these habitus, what he calls habitus of being and what we're going to call habitus of operation, acting. Okay? Acting is kind of a nuts. I should put some footnotes on that, but habits of operation. Habits of being are qualities like health, being healthy, that's a quality. Being beautiful, quality. Uh, when you have a habitus of, uh, of being, it allows the being, in this case we're talking about human persons, the persons to function suitably. Later in the second talk, we're going to learn, he says grace is one of these kinds of habitus. Grace is a way of being. It's a part of your being. All right? We're going to get to that later. Um, but the habits of operation, which is the habitus of operation, which is this primary, when he talks about habitus, that's really all he's ever talking about. Um, those are habitus that help you to either act well or operate well or operate poorly. Okay, those are the habitus in relation to something else. Okay, now there are suitable and unsuitable habitus. So if you're sick, that's a bad habitus of being. Right? If you're ill, if you have a vice, that's all. That's a character. That's a bad habitus of operation. I'm going to talk about how we get these things in a second. All right. So for the habitus of operation, there's basically Two versions, virtue and vice. You can imagine which one you want, right? You want virtue. And a, a, a virtue is a habitus that is in line with or in accord with your nature, with human nature. A vice is not. Right. How do we get them? Well, very easy. Um, I shouldn't say that it's very easy to get them. It's not. Um, but they're formed by, once again, I'm only talking about operating habitus now. Habitus are formed by repeated actions or repeated choices of the same kind, of the same quality. So that's why it's more than just a disposition. Um, because, precisely because we're malleable, precisely because we're malleable, when we make certain kinds of choices over and over and over and over again, we are being formed by those kinds of choices. Okay. Um, I taught undergrads at Providence College for four years before I was the dean of our faculty, our House of Studies in DC, so all of my examples always have to do with undergrad college students. Um, you know, when an undergrad, for example, makes the choice, uh, choice always to go out on Friday nights and the choice to always go out on Saturday nights and then the choice uh, to try to cram on Sunday nights and they do this week after week after week after week after week, that creates a character in them. So that the first time they have a major exam on Monday and they say to themselves on Thursday, I'm not going to go out on Friday night, they can't do it. Because, well, guess what? They just spent 20 weeks going out on Friday nights. Does that make sense? That's, 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 that's character. They've built a character. They've acquired, do we want to call it a vice? I mean, maybe. Depends on what they're doing when they're out on Friday and Saturday nights, right? Uh, but they certainly have not acquired the virtue of studiousness. So repeated actions eventually give you a disposition that actually forms a character. Um, we've all had that experience in college, I would imagine. Um, now for St. Thomas, and this is once again just because we come into this world sort of blank slates and we're being formed by the choices we eventually make from, from childhood all the way into adulthood until death. So St. Thomas distinguishes then virtue as those habitus that actually help you to act with excellence, with freedom. He says there are intellectual virtues, you know, wisdom, 
understanding science. He doesn't mean hard science. He means just the, under, you know, the virtue of wanting to know. I mean, that takes work. It takes repeated choices. Once again, I mean, going, going just to our environment of being here at NYU in the university setting, I mean, the first time I had to read Descartes, I think I fell asleep after a paragraph. I did not have the character or the studiousness of reading Descartes, right? So what do I do? I stand up and I try to plod my way through until eventually I can read Descartes sitting down without falling asleep. I get the character of being able to read Descartes. I don't know what St. Thomas would call that other than studiousness, you know, some sort of existential studiousness, I guess. So um, there are intellectual virtues, but the more important virtues for St. Thomas are what we're going to call the moral virtues. And of course, you know the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Fortitude strengthens the irascible appetite. So when you're getting into that whole um, fear because something's difficult, it's the battlefield virtue we often talk about. The soldier has to have courage, has to have fortitude, which is different than foolishness and different than cowardice. Right? Um, temperance is the moderation, the virtue that um, works in that concupiscible part of us, how to feel rightly, you know, and be sensuous in a right way, and enjoy sense, sense, sense pleasures moderately and in the right way. Uh, the virtue of justice, and I'm not going to spend time on all of these, is the will to uh, give everyone what is their due, what's coming to them. Now we see that, we often think of justice in a criminal justice system where you're giving a criminal what's coming to them. But for St. Thomas, obviously, it's bigger than that. Justice is, for example, giving my parents the habitual respect that they deserve. That's justice. Right? Giving my country habitual respect it deserves. Um, this should be interesting. If the President of the United States walks into the room, even if I didn't vote for him and don't especially <coughs> like him, his station and his, his duty to the common good demands a certain level of respect in the virtue of justice. Sometimes justice also requires um, admonishment, for example, and fraternal correction. Right? That's all justice. The most important one of these, though, is prudence. Right? Dominicans are big on prudence. Prudence is simply not only knowing good and true things, and in the moral life, not only knowing um, what must be done, like in a situation, prudence is knowing uh, how to do it, at what point to do it, in what way. I mean, go back to those difficult conversations you often have to have in life, you know. I mean, nobody likes conflict, right? Nobody likes conflict. The virtuous person doesn't run away from conflict. But the virtuous, prudent, the prudent person knows how to engage conflict with another person in such a way as to get um, the good result, like, I probably shouldn't talk to her about this right now because she's kind of agitated, you know? That wouldn't be prudent, right? The prudent knows, knows the, in, this, in this scenario the person and knows when they're really going to be in the mood to have a, a difficult conversation. Married couples figure this out more or less about each other eventually. If they don't, there might be problems, right? So here's the thing. You can't have, and this was disputed in, in the scholastic age, but I'm here to give you St. Thomas, so I believe he's right about this. You can't have these four virtues, and they all have like sub-virtues underneath them, you know, which is a fun read to go through the Summa and find all of those. But these four cardinal virtues, you can't have one really without the other. And you can't have any of them certainly without prudence, Right? Because prudence is what tells the courageous man what courage is and what cowardice is. It's not courage to run out of the foxhole blazing your gun at the enemy you know, in some, in some sort of uh, fit of wanting to go down in glory. That's not courage. That's foolishness. And had the soldier uh, been prudent, <laughs> he would have known that. And so he would have been courageous. Okay? So one way to think about 
virtue is to say that virtue, when I am virtuous, I not only know the good that I should be pursuing, but I know how to pursue it, when it's appropriate to pursue it, in what way, and I'm actually doing it. That's the most important thing. In virtue, you're actually doing it. That's what I mean. This is not an armchair ethic. You can sit here and talk about virtue all day long, and you can sit here and talk about, you can be, have a major decision or a major issue you have to confront in your life, and you may be talking to all sorts of people about how to do it, and, what, and everyone agrees with you. Yeah, you know, you know, Bob, you're absolutely right. You need to go in there and demand a raise. You need to do this. You need to do that. Yeah. If you never do it, sorry, you're not virtuous. You're just abstractly thinking about it. Does that make sense? Here's the other thing that's most important for virtue. So knowing the good thing to do, the right thing to do, in the right way, at the right time, in the right manner, and actually doing it, and this is what gets most of us, actually taking delight and joy in doing the good and doing the right thing. So if you're grumbling about it, or if you're, if you're resistant to it, or if you're only doing it because you have an obligation to do it, you're probably not yet virtuous, at least in that sort of mode, right? Because the virtuous person takes joy in doing good and being good and pursuing truth. That's what, in fact, law is supposed to do and rules are supposed to do. They're supposed to help you and being raised. The kind of families we're raised in, the kind of friends we surround ourselves with, the kind of things we allow ourselves to enjoy, all of that is helping us or hindering us from becoming morally excellent and virtuous people, either helping or hindering. 